0: Welcome back, everyone, to an incomplete field guide to ministry coming to you from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. My name is Marvin Wickware, and I'm assistant professor of church and society and ethics here at LSTC, and I'm here with my co-host, Kim Wagner, assistant professor of homiletics. How are you today, Kim?
1: I'm doing well, thanks. Enjoying uh, some sunshine. It's a little chilly, uh, but also, you know, just um, enjoying life. And, and walking the dog, so, so life is good. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm getting over a cold, which I'm glad was just a cold. So
1: absolutely could
0: be a lot worse, but a little under the weather. You can probably hear it in my voice.
1: Oh, it, it just sounds like you have a good kind of, like you've been lecturing a long time. But <laughs> uh, you've, you've just been passing out your wisdom.
0: I, I always uh, enjoyed back in the days when choirs existed. If I was just the right amount sick, I would actually become a bass for a little bit instead of like a kind of low end baritone. So it was always fun. Like when my throat was just like a little gravelly to I sing. Love it.
1: I love it. That's great. That's great. See, I just lived as a second alto. So cold. <laughs> I mean, really just being when I have a cold, then I'm more of a tenor, I guess, but always living in that nice second alto range. <laughs>
0: All right. We've 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 got a, a good plan for today. We're going to talk about the pandemic uh, in relation to relationships. Uh, and then we have a great interview lined up with our colleague, Benjamin Stewart, uh, who's going to talk about public church, liturgy, and creation.
1: Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation about the pandemic. So thinking about um, pandemic and relationships, I'd love to hear, Marvin, how you understand kind of the way the pandemic has impacted, or highlighted, or exacerbated even relationships, and how you understand what's going on there.
0: Yeah, I I think of course there are a few ways to understand what's happening. Uh, in in one way or in in some cases there's a there's a disconnect right between relationships and the physical proximity that had always been a part of them, right? Um, local communities are fractured in this strange way, so that even though people live in the same places they've been living, they live, you know, feet, uh, yards, miles apart, they aren't gathering, right? Uh, the, the, the spaces in which people would gather, the, the ways that they would congregate informally uh, just isn't happening. And so whatever communities are right now, it's, it's not what they were. Uh, a year ago, or a year and more, <laughs> in in some cases, yeah. There's there's this strange fracturing happening, and that's true. Uh, you know, for our purposes, purposes, uh, especially clearly with churches, right? That what it is to gather in your local congregation might look very different than it did a year ago.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's
0: also this this weird like mass dislocation of relationships, so that. It's, it's fairly ordinary for a, a person to get a new job across the country and they move. And now all of a sudden they have to figure out how they're going to stay connected to the people that, that they love and that formed the core of their support network, but who no longer, they can no longer be around physically. That's happened to like everybody all at once. It's like everybody just moved to some strange new place altogether. And we all have to figure out, oh, how do I stay in touch with my friends when we can't get together and watch movies or play board games or, or, you know, just get together and gripe about work or whatever it is that we did. Right. It's like everybody got dislocated from one another at once. Um, And so we're all just struggling to, to adapt our relationships, even a year on, right. When you move a year later, maybe a couple of those old friends or people you're really staying in touch with, but, a lot of them it just doesn't work long distance but we all still well not you know some folks somehow have moved during this but for a lot of folks we're living right where we were and it's and those relationships are feeling strained right a year later can i just keep talking to this person playing board games over zoom and maintaining a relationship with them when we aren't together yeah And then also with with organizations, with churches, with schools, with with various kinds of businesses, there's just a breakdown in communication where you would, at at LSTC, right, you would run into people in the, the grand hallway, the great hallway. I don't remember which it is, but it's the big hallway with the big windows. Grand. The grand hallway. There we go. You would bump into people and you would talk to them and you would you would talk about a student that you both have and, and you're concerned about them, or you would hear about an interesting project somebody's doing and, and come up with something you could do together or just the, the little problems and, and little opportunities that get worked out or that get created just because we're near each other. That doesn't happen the same way when you're online, you're, you're not going to go into a breakout room on zoom so that you can have an informal quick conversation with people, right? To have those little conversations adds another meeting to your day, basically. And so there are all these ways that, that we're used to being together and now aren't. And it's, it's causing all these kind of disconnects uh, in our relationships. Uh, in, in some cases, almost the opposite is happening where we're together too much, and that, that causes a strain on relationships. Like, like in my family, uh, my wife and I love our kids. We love each other. We do not want to be together this much right? <laughs> without a break. It's not good for us. We, Most people, I, I would say, maybe all, I don't know, need some amount of space from other people, right? Uh, not even just talking about privacy, but just needing some kind of quiet, some amount of solitude. I need that more than most people, I think. But also, I find myself, and I, I think this is, is true of, of other parents, at, at least, and probably true of plenty of other folks, I'm serving in too many roles in the relationships I'm in mm-hmm. uh, i'm I'm my my kids' uh, you know parent for one i'm I'm like their uh, you know assistant teacher for their kindergarten teacher or for for one of our kids and 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 I'm playing this social role with my kids that isn't what parents are for, right? Your parents aren't the people I think who are who are supposed to to be interested in the games you're playing just as much as you are, right? Right. Uh, I'm supposed to ask how your day went and you're supposed to give me a one sentence answer because you already talked about everything interesting with your friends at school, right? I, I'm supposed to be, you know, working out a different kind of relationship, but but to, to have kind of all the social weight kind of consolidated, uh, you know, the the role that a therapist might play, right? Kind of all of these things being being clustered into into the same person. Uh, in a lot of cases, is is putting strain on relationships. The the other thing that I, I think we can understand about what's going on is something that's thankfully being revealed uh, through the pandemic, which is it's increasingly clear how unsustainable uh, work life balance is. Right, that work intrudes in so many ways on people's relationships. Um, I don't think this is necessarily actually more the case at this point uh, than it was a year ago before the pandemic uh, or a year and a couple months or whatever, but it's really clear now because you see people in their homes and you see the ways that work makes it impossible for them to live the lives that they wanna live. Um, I'm hopeful that we will continue in this awareness going forward instead of thinking, oh, now that a lot of people are back in offices, work and life are are going to get along better, as if people weren't already bringing a lot of work home or bringing a lot of energy and, and exhaustion and anxiety from work home. Yeah, so, so what are, how are you thinking about how we can understand what's going on?
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, we've been moving through these questions of understanding what's going on and, and then thinking about how is this a matter of faith or thinking theologically, and I want to break the rules a little bit i'd love to think about those things together i'm actually having a hard time uh, peeling those things apart you know um, and and i'm thinking about specifically when we talked about we're going to talk about the pandemic and relationships i really saw it in kind of three categories um individual personal relationships kind of corporate societal relationships and then our relationship with technology so i just want to talk about each of those three just for a minute because um, to me, I think the way the pandemic has impacted each of those is really important or, or what it has actually um, brought up for us in each of those. So I'll start with the individual and personal. Um, and I think there's both, you know, anytime we we talk theologically, there's always gift and challenge, right? There's There's blessings and curses. Um, And, you know, this pandemic has raised these questions of, you know, what are some of the blessings? And I think one of the blessings is that in our personal and individual relationships, it has reminded us how much we actually need one another and the importance of relationship. Um, I can only speak really out of my experience. I uh, do not have a spouse or a child at home. I have a dog and there are times, I think it's your, your strained relationship discussion really works with the dog too. But I will say, you know, I just been reminded how much I need other people. And and I am an extroverted person to begin with, but even still just the way that we interact with and care for and invest in one another. Um, The other kind of thing that happens is I think the curses, right? It reveals this brokenness in our relationships. And for me, that brokenness in personal relationships has been revealed in kind of um, two big ways. One is that even in our personal lives, so many of us and so many faithful people like myself have bought into this kind of myth of the self-made man or the self-made person, right? And that, and that myth has been exposed that, that we've somehow equated independence with strength. And, and I just think that, that's, that has been broken open in this pandemic uh, that we've recognized that strength is in community uh, that strength is in relationship. That the gift of relationship is uh, what builds us up, what makes us um, um, stronger and and healthier and wiser people. And so I think that's kind of the first thing that has been broken is this this kind of myth that strength comes when we can uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? That uh, that that great American myth. And and I think this pandemic in our personal relationships has revealed that we need one another to be fully a flourishing human being. And this is why the theology mixed so deeply in with me, right? Mm. That that if we believe that God is, is calling for our flourishing, that our flourishing is not something that is just us or just us and God, but that God has gifted us these relationships in these communities through which we find God, through which we see the spirit move, and through which we find our flourishing. The other kind of brokenness or falsehood, I think, or, or problem that was exposed in these kind of individual personal relationships, is that, um, at least for me, I think I'm seeing pastors and lay leaders, uh, especially in churches, but elsewhere, recognize the way that we have never understood true loneliness for so many in our society who have been carrying this kind of um, loneliness, this, you know, I think about homebound folks. I think about folks who are ill. I think about um, folks who are, who are, um, because of health or because of economic situation are really separated from their support communities, from those they love. And this kind of deep loneliness that I think now so many people have experienced has exposed the ways we've been inattentive or underattentive to those who have been experiencing this well before the pandemic began. So that's the personal one. Then uh, the, the kind of corporate or life together, right? Um, again, blessings and curses, gifts and, and exposing brokenness. One of the gifts, I, I guess it's a gift, is that it's shown us how related and interrelated we really are. And I think about this in, in kind of a positive and negative way. We, uh, the fact that this disease has spread globally, the fact that I can get this disease from a person i have never met nor even talked to i can be walking through a store and if it's if somebody brought it in and it's in the air i i participate in breathing that air right? right um and so thinking about the way this disease even oceans cannot cannot stop it right it it proves how interconnected we actually are as a global society and that what happens in one space makes a difference and changes what happens in another. And I think this is a an aha that has been very painful as we think about the disease itself, but could be a real gift of, and a reminder as we think about global issues like poverty and global warming and, and climate change, right? So so I think it, the gift is it has shown us how interrelated we really are. And it, the the blessing of it shown how interrelated we are and in, in how we rely upon one another. Mm-hmm. But then that also exposes the brokenness, right? And it's something we talked about last week, which is this kind of disproportionate dependence on those we deem essential workers who Mm -hmm. we ask them, or in many cases, they have no choices, really, if they want to continue to be able to feed their families and have a roof over their head, that they have to put their lives and bodies on the line For the comfort of those in privilege for others. And so to think about kind of it has exposed the disproportionate ways that we depend on one another. And for me, this is a a theological uh, problem because it's a a mismatch of relationship with bureaucracy, right? There's the bureaucratic system, these positions that we're the the cogs in the machine, right? We talk about, Mm -hmm. but these positions that folks fill in. And I think that we have lived with bureaucracy so long, especially in the United States, right? Um, When I teach about this in class, I always say like, democracy sells the lie of bureaucracy, right? Anytime democracy comes in, bureaucracy is riding its coattails. And bureaucracy becomes mixed up with democracy, but also bureaucracy, slotting people in, everybody has a position, the lie of meritocracy, right, all of that. It, uh, that we have bought into the idea that that's relationship. That's not relationship because that is not a, a mutually beneficial nurturing, right? That is a, um, a system in which uh, that is utilitarian and can even, as you talked about last week, be deeply exploitative. And so it's relationality that's based off of hierarchy, not relationality based off of mutual care. And so I think one of the things in our corporate and social life that the pandemic has exposed is this kind of mix-up that we've had about calling bureaucratic interaction and hierarchical interaction relationship. And I think that this has exposed, no, there is a real need for us as faithful people to think about what it means to be in true relationship with one another, which means a a relationship to honor one another as fully beloved and created children of God who are deeply gifted and for the mutual flourishing of one another. And um, the way our system is set up now, that is not the case. And though we are deeply dependent on each other, we're dependent on each other um, in ways that are exploitative or at best, utilitarian, not um, relational.
0: Right.
1: And then the third one is this relationship with technology. I just kept thinking, when we were talking about relationship, I thought, like, you know, who have I had the closest relationship to in the last year? Probably my computer, right? <laughs> Probably the technology <laughs> that has allowed me to access friends and family, um, that has allowed me to teach classes, right? That has allowed me to be in meetings, um, to record podcasts. Um, just to name a few. But I think that we have always had kind of a distorted relationship with our technology. And I'm especially thinking about kind of video, audio, um, internet connectivity technology, right? Not, not technology writ large. Um, of course, the blessing and the gift of all this tech is that it has largely connected us. It has allowed us to, to meet, to teach uh, to continue to 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 have these relationships it's the way I've got had the chance to see my friends in, in the winter um, it also has taught us I think how many meetings could actually be emails which I <laughs> hope is something we keep going with post pandemic but it also I think has has exposed obviously it has exposed uh, economic disparities for those who do not have access to reliable internet to um, to computers that work. Um, There's so many issues around, um, you know, news stories are coming out now about thousands, uh, probably more than that, of children and young people who have not been going to school quote, unquote, because they don't have access to technology or their technology doesn't work or it broke at some point on the way and nobody can afford uh, to, 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 you know, Mom, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or guardian can't go out and just buy a new computer. Yeah. So it's exposed that kind of thing. But I think it also has forced us to be honest about uh, technology not being our savior. I think we have had this kind of uh, deep trust in technology as, as that which will take us into the future. But having to do it full time and 24 seven, I think we realize how much has been lost when we do things only by technology, that we miss the body language of one another. Because even on video, you're only seeing what? Uh, waist up, sometimes you know, shoulders up. Um, you're not seeing the full embodiment of someone. You're missing each other's bodies. Um, I kept talking with my preachers about, don't forget you have legs, right? Like when you preach, don't forget, like you can still move, right? You can still move back and forth. And don't forget the embodiment of your congregation, like invite them to put their hands in their lap, invite them to like do tactile things to remember um, that we are embodied creatures, but we're missing that kind of all that rich nonverbal communication. And the other thing you named are missing just the, the wonderful things that happen when we're in proximity with each other. right? When we bump into each other in the hallway, when we have these brief conversations in between meetings, or um, you know, that 10 minutes before class, I so miss the students gathering in a classroom, right? When yeah. we're not all on mute, um, when I don't feel like I have to spend the first like five minutes while everyone's coming in doing a stand up comedy routine, right? I miss that because so much rich relational connection happens in that space. And so I do think like our relationship with technology has shifted. It has pointed out economic disparities, but I think it also, in a good way, has kind of reminded us that technology is a tool, not our savior, not. Um, the thing that will will um, substitute for all of the kind of basic what it means to be in community and a relationship with each other. So I talked forever because I decided to lump all of those questions together because for me it was really hard to peel apart what's going on with kind of that theological reflection. Um, but your brain is much more organized than mine. So I'm wondering how you are thinking about um, all of this kind of relationality stuff as a matter of faith.
0: My brain is not more organized. My brain is a mess. And if I don't stick to the organization provided by the questions, it will just be complete and utter ring. <laughs> um, a, a couple things uh, come to mind for me. One is, as, as you were talking about the, the, the problem of the um, the self-made man, right? And I, I think it's—I think "man" is the right word. That—that that is the image. Plenty of people strive to be self-made, uh, but the image is of the self-made man. I—I mm-hmm. um, I think of it. My my advisor, right uh, back in in grad school, taught me that the image of the self-sufficient man—that—that that kind of individualism that that image represents—is—is is, is inadequate, right? As as you named it. and. and and that inadequacy is deeply theologically relevant. That, that image of the, the self-sufficient man, right, is grounded in, in an image of God being defined by self-sufficiency, right? As, as if the, the core quality uh, that, that marks God as divine and different than, than humans is that God needs nothing from us, right? There are ways that that idea that God needs nothing from us can be Life giving, but when that's when that's put at the center, as if that's what makes God God, right? And then humans are are made in the image of God, and therefore should have something of that that kind of core, definitive quality that makes God God. Uh, When when self sufficiency stands in that role, it it does nothing good. Right, for those who would, who would follow God faithfully, who would strive to, to be like God in the ways that humans should be like God, right, uh, to, to, to be a reflection of, of those kind of divine qualities. Uh, and so that, that kind of self-sufficient God uh, image, the problems of accepting that and, and accepting the idea that we're made in that image uh, stand out right now, uh, especially. I think also the, the problem of individualism and this, this is, you know, long been argued there, there's an imbalance in a lot of our notions of salvation as Christians a, a, an, an overly individualized idea of salvation uh, that simply has nothing I think to offer uh, a world that is kind of suffering altogether. The, the idea that, oh, well, when it gets bad enough for you and you die, God will God will be there. Right? When yeah. when everyone around you is is suffering, when hundreds of thousands, millions of people are are dying, um, we long for some kind of collective, global, creation wide transformation. It, it it is not enough to kind of cling to the hope that well, I'll be okay when this is done, and hopefully my loved ones too, right? Or maybe even lots of individuals out there will be okay once we've suffered enough, right? It's, it's just the kind of transparency and and pervasiveness of suffering right now is, it, it kind of makes it clear the, the weaknesses of that kind of individualized notion of salvation. Um, the, the other kind of theologically relevant uh, insight that I can come up with is, it go, goes back to kind of how I think about theology, right? When we talked about that whenever, uh, the, the idea that relationality is, is at the heart of God, right? And, and at the heart of human existence, as you said, right? We're all connected in, in real physiological ways. Atoms that make up, you know, this, yep. this virus go from one of us to another and and bind us together in in life changing and life ending sometimes ways. Yep. So God and, and humans are are fundamentally relational. Uh, God, in, in in terms of the the triune nature of God, right? The 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 fact that God is multiple persons in a in a real way. Uh, that that is how we understand God is the image of a single person is not enough right to communicate and 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 stand for the reality of god uh, but a community is the only way we can we can really picture god as as christians and the the fact that god is a creative god god from the beginning longed for creation longed for a growing fellowship with beings outside of god's self uh but but who would always be held within god's love um I, I think this relationality tells us that that our longing for one another that that you talked about that that loneliness that that so many of us had not experienced or had had experienced for short enough periods that we could tell ourselves that it was just like an aberration mm-hmm. uh, rather than a, a real way of being uh, that is simply wrong uh, our, our longing for one another is holy right it's it's not just uh, a kind of psychological need it's it's not just well you know humans are social creatures uh, but but it is actually oh, this this is what it is to to recognize the divinity like in the connections that are between us to to need at a deeper level than than we need just our, our kind of everyday needs to to need each other is is a holy thing uh, and and not like as as you said independence isn't strength right? But, but, but actually that need is important yeah. uh, and, and, and special to us. But also our, our need for a relationship to be rightly balanced, right? For, for us not to be all things to all people, for, for us to not be kind of asked to be more than we are, right? It reflects our connection to God, uh, that, that again, God is a God that is community in, in real ways, uh, that we we are never meant to just sustain another person on our own but but all of us need a community to care for us and and this isn't again this isn't a sign of of weakness e- even as in some ways it reflects uh, you know our our finite nature that that we're limited creatures but it actually reflects that that we are our creatures of a of a god who would not have anything stand alone uh, in all of creation.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love the way um, you articulated so richly, kind of the communal nature of God as Trinity, right? And that we are designed, not not out of a flawed design, but out of a holy design, um, to be in relationship and in community with one another. That's just beautiful. Thank you for that.
0: And and that 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 relationship, as you pointed out, right, isn't bureaucratic. Right it's not it's not a matter of oh okay so this means all of us have a part to play and we need to make sure all those parts fit together properly. Yeah. Right that that relationality isn't ju- just as as with the you know with the with the persons of the trinity you can't say oh this is the one that creates and this is the one that saves and this is the one that sustains us now as much as we can kind of act like oh we you know we'll say the like you know creator redeemer sustainer you can't really separate them out that way. They're all participating in in their own ways and and, in everything that goes on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that kind of call to that loving, mutually flourishing relationship. That's beautiful. Yes. So given all of that, um, I'd love to hear how you think Christians might respond then to all of this kind of both practical and theological reflection on how the pandemic has, has highlighted these issues and gifts around relationships.
0: Yeah. I'm going to give the same frustrating answer that I always give my students when they ask me, what are we supposed to do when we get out there to whatever place and have to confront something, which is, well, you kind of have to figure out what's going on in your community, right? Yep. <laughs> and, and proceed from there. Uh, so yep. just a, another variation on that theme that is, is the core of my teaching on ethics, right?
1: I mean, it's a theme worthy of variations,
0: <laughs> to be fair. There you to be fair. But uh, I, I think a, a couple forms of discernment, right, that, that, that are important. Uh, one is, is like, like I said, um, like I think I've said both of the last couple of weeks, I'm not sure. We need to examine our theological commitments and our liturgical practices, Right to to take seriously that just because we've been doing something doesn't mean it's what we need to do forever or that it was right to do it ever. We need to ask ourselves how are we preaching, how are we worshiping and ministering in ways that reinforce that individualism that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, the ways that we get together, the ways that our pastors operate, how do those show us that that the path of the Christian is one marked by by an increasing ability to stand apart from the world, uh, to to be unaffected, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and 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 to not need the community around us. Even in congregations and in communities that would lift up, you know community as important, there are still often ways that that messages are communicated that community is important. But what community is, is a whole bunch of people who don't necessarily need each other, but opt to be together because that's a good way to be. But fundamentally, you each need to be able to handle your own business so that you're not dragging everybody else down, right? Don't, don't be too needy in the community, right? Give back as much as you're getting, right? That, that kind of message can often be woven in even in a community that, that lifts up the importance of being together. And then a, a second question related to that, the, the flip side of it, right? How, how can we live our ecclesial life, that preaching, worshiping, ministering, uh, in, in ways that more faithfully honor the bonds of community that, that again, are, are at the heart of God's life and of God's desire for humanity? How could we be church differently? so that the that that message of individualism is is undermined right so that it's undone so that something else is put in its place uh, which that message of individualism is is something that's that's woven into the fabric of of us american public life right for, Absolutely. for centuries since before there were united states right since they were colonies uh, and coincidentally it happens to be tied into slavery right <laughs> the idea that oh there there are these this kind of certain class of people who who stand on their own uh and and through their own hard work right mm. that hard work being the work of their money to purchase the labor of others that that they are are kind of the drivers of society right this is just transformed in various ways over over time absolutely and and it's it's just soaked into to US American churches in in so many ways. So the, the second theme um, of discernment, uh, one kind of looking at our theological commitments and liturgical practices. Second, I, I think we need to look at relationships and to not move too quickly to just say, oh, you know, I didn't like coffee hour before, but now I appreciate it in a new way. It's so wonderful that I can just give you a hug, right? And to just say, this is great let's pick up where we left off, but with a new appreciation. I don't think we should we should move too quickly past the pandemic uh, to just return to how things were before, even if we're deeply appreciative of things that we might have dismissed as being a waste of time, just because what did you do besides just standing around with people? But for, for one, I, I think we need to discern how our ways of being together left us open to what has happened, right? To being harmed so deeply by the ways we've been separated. Uh, both individually and and again the ways our communities have been fractured it seems possible that even with social distancing and in all of its forms that we could have we could have been together more fully throughout this if if we weren't i'm not sure right this is this is the discernment that needs to happen but it it doesn't seem like things have to have happened this way it doesn't seem that that being apart physically should have necessarily shocked us in the ways that it did shouldn't have our individual lives that we are stuck living now, I guess I'll say, clearly don't contain the kind of routine care for one another that, that they need to, because when we've been kind of fractured into a bunch of individuals, in large part, we've lived individual lives. We haven't lived lives that are kind of oriented toward community, or at least the folks I'm hanging around. It seems like that, that need for community isn't, uh, isn't sufficiently right built into our individual lives. Uh, so we need to discern what is it about our ways of being together that make that possible for us to really just be a bunch of individuals coming together. Uh, and and it, again, I, I suspect this has something in particular to do with that that kind of U.S. American individualism. Uh, it probably doesn't apply everywhere, right? The the other thing I, I think is is we can embrace new ways we've learned to connect. Not again, not necessarily all technological ways. But ways that, ways that we've learned just to appreciate seeing people, right? Like just seeing other humans and interacting with them, even, even from across the distance. That's something to, to embrace, to, to learn, to, to perceive our times that we are together differently, uh, however much physical distance is involved. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's a time to embrace the ways we've learned to appreciate solitude, right? Those of us who are just trapped with others. Uh, to take that seriously, that that, that is a need, um, a need to be balanced with connection, right? Um, but but to, to really explore that going forward, uh, to, to carve out time to say in our lives, no, actually, sometimes I need to just be me, Right. I, I need to just heal. I need space. I need to rest. I need to breathe and, and to 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 figure out what to bring forward with us out of this time uh, as we move forward with our life together. So how do you uh, imagine Christians responding to this challenge of relationships?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I still kind of have those three categories. Right. The personal, the corporate and the tech uh, in my head. Um, and so I kind of think I'll organize my thoughts that way. But but the first thing to say is that with the personal and this kind of, we've been talking about that we were created, right, to be in relationship. I think one of the things that the church can learn and do more of moving forward is actually cultivate spaces for relationship formation. And, and that can be done now whether or not we're meeting together. I was actually at a conference last week where they actually gave quality time for folks to get together and share their experiences, their stories. And they would put us in groups of three and give us an hour and a half and say, you're doing holy listening. And it was so powerful because even though we were still on tech, like we were still like on a Zoom room, right? there was a way of cultivating this space where the goal of that work was relationship. And I think more and more, especially as we increasingly value productivity um, and product as the ultimate goal and the ultimate sign of, of, of health and strength and vitality, that, that if this pandemic could nurture anything in our church congregations, in our congregational life together, it's to cultivate space for relationships that does not have an agenda and is not and that we're not mistaking productivity for relationality. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. we can be productive and build relationship, but we can also be productive and not at all bond with anyone in the room. And so I think like thinking about what is the balance in our life together as a church for creating space to cultivate relationship and back to what you were talking about like preaching and liturgy that makes space for honoring that as important and good and worthy of our time. Right. I think so often when we get into a Zoom room or when we, you know, hopefully someday soon get into a, a you know, a, a classroom or, a, a, you know, office, we think like, OK, time is valuable. Time is money. The goal is to get this much done in our time together. What if we nurture a, a, a narrative that says our goal in this time is to be with one another, to learn, hear one another's stories and to learn from one another? right? We're not producing anything. And it was so funny, I was telling you about this conference I was at, one of the things, it was all um, a mix of of clergy, of um, professors, theology professors, and of community leaders, faith community leaders, Um, not faith communities, but nonprofit leaders. And at the end, they asked us like, what was the greatest gift of this time together? We had three days. And about 60%, I would say, of folks immediately typed in the chat, being invited to be fully in a space without having to produce anything. Like the power of that for folks. And I think that that's true, not just for religious leaders but for our whole communities to, to nurture spaces where we don't mistake productivity for relationality and that we create space to, to nurture relationship. I think also, and I want I wanna take some credit here for not saying the word trauma yet <laughs> but I'm about to drop the word that I think I I would be remiss, right? If I didn't go back and say like, we need to be attentive to the way trauma fractures relationship Mm -hmm. at both the individual and the corporate level. And so I think that creating space for reflection on how this pandemic has impacted individuals, uh, also creating space for confession. So reflection and confession. A lot of us, and I speak, I include myself in this, Our first inclination when the pandemic hit was to close down and and hold what was ours, right? I mean, we see that in evidence, the joke around hoarding toilet paper, right? But it's not a joke, right? It is our first inclination. And I think creating space for honest reflection and confession is going to be really important in moving our communities and the people within them through the trauma that is is unfolding and is bound to unfold uh, once this traumatic event has subsided. Uh, or once at least the urgency of it has subsided. Communally, I mean, this was both kind of communal and personal, but also I think communally, um, it's important for for faith leaders and for for leaders in all faith communities to think about what are the ways that conflicts are still existing in our community and may be exacerbated by uh, this traumatic event. Like as we contend with the trauma, It's going to be really interesting. I think when we first all get back together, there's going to be this kind of great party right about it. (laughs) And then immediately, pretty soon, first of all, those disagreements are going to come back with a vengeance because they now will be exacerbated by the experience of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, But also other fractures and fissures and, and problems are going to arise. And again, as I talked about last week, I invite preachers to really think about how do we do community formation work? Uh, because I do think that cultivating community and also having an honest reckoning about what was broken before we got into the pandemic, including something you talked about last week, which is where are we disproportionately relying on one or two people, whether church employees or or volunteers to carry so much of the labor to care for the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. So I think an honest accounting is also, again, it's that kind of reflection and confession uh, that is going to allow us to contend with this trauma communally um, in ways that does not break apart the community but allows us to move through those, those fractures as you were talking about earlier and move into kind of healthier, newly established relationship that, that cares even more deeply about the welfare of one another. And then just finally the relationship with tech and, and I appreciate the way you talked about um, at the end there you know, thinking about the ways that we've learned to connect now and not leaving that behind, I do think that um, I think we can reorient our relationship to technology. Right? I think there was there are many churches who had an allergy to technology, mm-hmm. um, and and I get it, rightfully so in some cases. But now that we've seen that we can use that technology can be a tool not only to reach more people but to make our common life together more accessible for a lot of folks, mm-hmm. right? Um, for folks who are homebound, for folks who travel a lot, right? For folks who, uh, a friend of mine is in the military and he said, it was such a joy to get to watch Youth Sunday <laughs> this this year because my kids are all youth. They got to do it from their home in Virginia and I was in wherever he was, I don't even know. Um, and I got to participate, right? So the ways it makes it, things accessible but I also hope it'll reorient our relationships. So again, there's those churches that had the allergy, but there's also those churches and those communities that kind of look to technology as as the savior, right? Like if only we had a great online presence, if only then all the young people would come flooding into our churches and it would save our church. And what I hope we can do is, is recognize, well, Tech does make it more accessible. It does open up spaces for folks to come visit who might not feel as comfortable coming in through through building doors. However, tech is not um, at the heart of what it means to be church. right? And again, inviting churches to reestablish who they are, who they are called to be, and then recognize technology as neither a curse nor the savior but that as a tool through which we might engage our ministry. So those are my thoughts on 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 church things and I'm sure I could come up with a whole laundry list more but those are the 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 big ones that arrived for me.
0: Thank you so much for sharing and for this good conversation.
1: Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much.
0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm here to interview Reverend Dr. Benjamin Stewart, the Gordon A. Bratz Associate Professor of Worship here at LSTC, and the Director of the Zygon Center for Science and Religion. Uh, Thanks for taking some time to be with us today. I'm delighted to be here, Marvin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at LSTC.
2: Well, I teach worship, the introductory worship course. I um, kind of my special area of interest in there is the way that worship relates to ecology and especially how our ritual actions kind of orient us to the wider creation. I'd say I'm actually even formed thinking about the, the context of this course. My two, I, I served two parishes before I uh, came to, went back to graduate school, and they both had really interesting intersections with publics. Um, One was a kind of new start of a church in the Bible Belt, the southern part of Ohio in Appalachia, where this little Lutheran church, little cinder block church was kind of known as this strange place where they were kind of emphatic about this stuff of God's grace and mercy and anybody's welcome there. (laughs) And it was quirky and fun. And then I was pastor to this little place called Holden Village up in the mountains, this retreat center that, you know, takes all day to get there but about every year, 7,000 people cycle through the village and has these public-facing scholarship and public-facing liturgy and um, uh, kind of like a Chautauqua setting. So the engagement with the public was was always really interesting to me in my uh, two different parish settings. So it's fun to be talking about this with you today. Yeah, wonderful. So what does public church mean to you? Yeah, so... I'd say it the short way first, right? If I was going to distill this down, I think it it, it indicates that the gospel, the good news is itself public. It's kind of part one. And that it it's born into the world. It's carried into the world by a public itself called the church, right? So that's the delivery system for this public news. And I can I can riff on that some kind of images that help me think about what what that means. Um all the way back to the beginning of our tradition, like all the way at the beginning of the canon, right? It's this word that echoes out over creation, um, that this creation is good, very good. And it's creating a kind of shared public world that all these creatures inhabit and each of them is getting named. Um, All of that, the, the word is public and a cosmos gets created by this shared word. John retells that story right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and it has there that kind of ironic twist that, in fact, while Jesus, you know, from the beginning is the Word of God, there's this strange reality that this public Word that holds everything together gets missed all the time. We miss it over and over and gets shoved, in some ways, like the attempt to shove this Word out of the creation. Um, And so the Christian then Gospel is this sense that, Yeah, the word keeps getting shoved to the margins, but that's where you're gonna find it rising up under the cover of darkness from the shadows, reorienting the whole universe to this new center. When we keep, we, the the power structures keep trying to shove it to the the margins. So it goes all the way back. One more image, I guess I would use for public church. And maybe this is the kind of step back from the cosmos and step into the Lutheran confessions. (laughs) And I think, you know, for, for those people who are part of the Lutheran confessions, uh, the, the confessions themselves were not an originally numbered. And so, you know, again, this is kind of inside, you know, Lutheran nerd church talk, but it is an important thing. It's kind of our church charter in some ways. The Augsburg Confession, Article 4 is right. Where we talk about justification by grace through faith. And sometimes we'll say that's the article by which the church stands or falls. But remembering that these articles weren't numbered at first. If you read the confessions like that, you'll see that we go from Article 4, right, and then it goes goes right into the office of preaching. And so that preaching is created to be one of the delivery vehicles, well, the delivery vehicle for this article that justifies. And then it moves on to good works that were created for these, doing these good works that won't justify us, won't set us right, But then it moves on to the way that the church offers these to the world through word and sacrament. Uh, And that's what ministers are called to do. So, you know, the pipeline is an ugly image these days. But to think about in some ways, right, the church's job is to be this pipeline to deliver justifying grace, saving grace. And what comes out at the end of that pipeline is bread and cup and water and scripture and preachers. That's what it looks like when it goes public. So those are some ways that I think about public church. I guess, Can I say one more thing about it too? Absolutely. The other thing is that I think that one, a couple of misunderstandings of it can be that um, well, LSCC does public church, and you know other seminaries may do like private church or privatized church, and that's fine. That's okay. We actually would not want to say that. We think public public church is a corrective of a problem, right? right. That um, it turns insular, it turns in on itself. The other slight variation on that misunderstanding would be maybe that um, church is stuff that happens on Sunday and it's concerned with, you know, the altar guild and bake sales and youth trips uh, and these kind of um, word games that are worship services that are just all theology speak. And then, then we add to that. That's the boring stuff. And then we get to do the fun public stuff. That's a false binary, and I, you know, we let's solve the problem. If the stuff inside is insular and boring, it shouldn't be that way, right? Right. So those are just some perspectives on public church. Yeah, thank you. So woven throughout
0: that, and you said let's step back from the cosmos, but but the cosmos, right? The the creation is as much as we might step back from it for analytical purposes is is what we are, right? Is is what presents us with with wonderful possibilities and gifts, but but also because of, of how we, you know, humanity has lived for the last few centuries. It's, it's, it's this increasingly kind of, uh, you know, fraught space for us. The, the fact that we actually have to relate to a broader creation. So how might your understanding of public church, that, that idea of the word, right? The, the gospel kind of coming out and being offered in, in these in these various forms of word and sacrament. How might that help guide Christi-
2: how Christians relate to the broader creation? That's such, I mean, I have such passion around that question. You, you phrased that so beautifully that especially over the last few centuries in Western cultures, there's been a way that that's been we've been disassociated from that. So in one way, like, you know, read my book, A Watered Garden, <laughs> Christian Worship <laughs> and Earth's Ecology. And the next book project that's coming too is largely about that very question. So it's a huge thing, right? And a little podcast. Let me try to give a few markers. One is uh, anthropologists uh, and people who study the origins of religion, just imagine that religion may have, how did it come to be? And there's lots of, you know, there's instinctive kind of pattern, ritualized behaviors among other non-human animals, but the storytelling and the kind of the sense of another world within this world maybe began around the fire doing storytelling Mm. and at the grave. And those are two possibilities. And, you know, obviously probably both are true. So I think about the way we get oriented to the wonder of creation and to the reality of mortality and the fact that we ourselves come from the earth and return to the earth. So obviously that's a lot of my work in the natural burial movement. How do we recover a sense of funerals? from which the body and the earth haven't disappeared. I mean, that's what's happening in North American funerals is that people don't go to the grave and often now there's not even a body there. Let me think of a a few other little kind of headlines I'd put over that. One is the way that I think that the place of worship is a place where that word of goodness, that the creation is good and to be treasured and loved and not something to be just mined or controlled or tamed. We're one of the few places that does that. Even now today, the the motif of geoengineering, right? That um, out of a kind of environmental concern that things are so bad, we just, humans need to take over everything. Um, I think the church is a place that has a kind of, we know what it means to honor something by also saying hands off, that's sacred, right? the other, this is a little more. This is this is a place where I'd think about a challenge to the liturgical guild. We often like to think about like kind of the the archetypal worship happening in a place. I'll put quotes around this up in up in heaven, or back in history. Um, and there's ways in which that's a helpful motif. But in terms of the way ritual has unfolded over the centuries, it's often that the cosmos itself, the rising sun, the setting sun, the cycles of the seasons, um, the goodness of bread and cup, the the way that water washes over us, in some ways these other creatures have been like liturgical leaders to us that we're in a kind of dialogue with. And indigenous cultures have retained this wisdom um, much more fully than western cultures. So I'm interested in thinking about the ways that natural elements are kind of calling us deeper into prayer. And what's it mean for us to worship in spaces then that are cut off from all of that? Sure.
0: So if if I can draw out a, a, a tension that that I, I think is a creative tension, but but something in in what you were saying, on, on the one hand, there's there's this intimate relationship that we have with creation, this kind of constant, I mean, we are creation, right? But this constant um Communication and contact between us and the rest of creation. On the other hand, there's this need to honor, right? By by, kind of hands off, right? S- similarly, with um, with with natural burial, right? There's there's death, which is in in some sense a a a separation, right? Like an an, an almost absolute separation, depending on how you think about the afterlife. But on on the other hand, there's this this need that that you lift up to not release right the the dead too too quickly right but but to actually be there with the body as it's as it's laid to rest in the ground and so i'm wondering if you could just talk a little more about that kind of hands off
2: intimate relationship kind of tension there oh my gosh yeah that's so um provocatively and beautifully stated i mean in some ways right i mean this could sound a little Saccharin, but i think the reality of it is is the opposite but that's the mystery of um being creatures who experience love that hmm. um love is this what centripetal force is that right yeah centripetal <laughs> that like draws us <laughs> draws us toward one another draws us toward the earth um it's so good it's so sweet and yet we know that enmeshment can happen the desire that can kind of just gently be tweaked into a desire to control and never to let go Mm. Um, and the, the corruption that that can cause. Augustine has all kinds of problems about this, but he really understands that kind of dance, that the love of God is a lot like what I experience when I see this beauty and a lot like when I'm savoring this food but not just like it. And so I think the poets also are always going after this question. What does it mean to, to hold something like your life depends on it? And then when it is time to let it go, to let it go and trust that it rests in God's mercy. And so, I mean, I'm thinking now we just prayed it last night in worship class. Um, we turn the words of Jesus on the cross into a kind of poetry that we use at death. Into your hands, O oh Lord, I commend my spirit. Into your and trusting that even at death, we can we can let go of of everything and rest in the mystery of God. And liturgy trains us for kind of doing that dance. Same dance really as uh, Moses at the burning bush, right? Take off your shoes, buddy. Don't 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 touch don't touch the bush because you can get burned. Take off your shoes too. Honor this. You're standing on holy ground and. You're holy too by standing there. Yeah.
0: Thanks. for taking a moment to to riff on that a little. I'm always you, know, super excited when somebody starts talking about love. So I, I I'll, I'll hope to talk talk with you more about that another time.
2: Excellent. Yeah.
0: So uh, changing gears a little bit. You know, putting on the uh, the worship professor hat. What advice do you have for folks who are trying to do public church ministry uh, especially as and, and this is a this is a question that my students always bring to me and I say you need to go talk to Dr. Stewart about this <laughs> but as they strive to reconcile traditional liturgy which can feel constraining can feel like it's grounded in a set of concerns and commitments that that are not today's right kind of concerns and commitments reconciling that traditional liturgy with with those contemporary concerns with certain concerns for justice or, or creation
2: yeah well so, so if somebody came to me and said, hey so I'm committed to doing traditional worship and I also want to do I'd say let me just stop you right there um, and I'd probably say I don't want you don't don't do traditional worship <laughs> <laughs> or I probably wouldn't say that actually because I'm pastoral I'd want to say like what do you mean by traditional worship? Mm. Which tradition whose tradition? Do you mean the one where like women can't be ordained and the tradition that like women maybe shouldn't even speak in church? uh, Do you mean the tradition of daily Eucharist or do you mean the tradition of once a year Eucharist, you know, (laughs) and, uh, you know, or even for like for most of Christian worship through history, there were no pews and no seats at all in Christian worship. It was just a big open space, which is kind of cool, you know, has some mobility questions for, for folk. But so... My hope is, you know, when I when I finally let go and go to the grave, I would love to see even that term kind of retired. And mm. in, in some ways, it's just a kind of folk category, right? That we kind of gestures towards some things, but it also, especially in a predominantly white culture like LSTC and predominantly white like the ELCA, um, it's really actually kind of dangerous because um, traditional worship then becomes what anthropologists would call the unmarked category. And what Mm -hmm. we're talking about really then, and and those means somebody's vision of white worship and usually some vision of their understanding, at least what's kind of descended from Europe. And it takes on this inappropriate level of authority. Oh, that's traditional Lutheran, right? So I always want to challenge that category. And what I want to say then is, how how do we think about being committed to sacramental worship? Sacramental worship that is engaged with, you know, to coin a term, a sacramental landscape that exists, a sacramental cosmos that exists outside of here. So the word is always coming to the elements. That's Luther loved that definition of Augustine. How does and we can we can think about that? What what does the scriptural word have to say about kids in cages at our borderlands, right? That's going to pop up in preaching, it's going to pop up in our prayers. It's going to pop up in our, our life outside of worship. So um, to me, that that handle, that kind of Augustinian definition of a sacrament is going to say we're always going to have a centripetal gathering place around these, these old things of scriptures, a meal, a bath, and those are always going to be juxtaposed to what's happening right now, um, like your sermon did, you know, not to... Uh, to prop you too much, but wow, what a sermon in Lent to think about this temptation narrative and all the ways that we become, that, that empire uh, seeks to make us devils to each other, right? What a, what a way to, we can name that in, in Lent, a liturgical season in a way that just has really profound interactions with uh, today's politics.
0: Well, if, if, I, if I can follow up, I, I think part of I absolutely agree with with your, your comments about what tradition often means. Yeah. I think in part, though, the, the students' concerns arise from a from a wise caution about coming into a first call and saying, I'm going to do things in a way that's deeply theologically grounded, but completely unfamiliar to you. And so I think in part, it is recognizing that whatever the reason is for why people are attached to their... What they consider traditional liturgy they are attached to it so if if you have that kind of pull in your congregation towards doing things a certain way how do you work with those with those people who are attached to those those certain traditional
2: again whatever that means forms of liturgy yeah that's a that's a really helpful clarification and so the, the, the funny thing is that this document that stu- students may roll their eyes when I mention it, because I love it so much, the Nairobi statement on worship and culture uh, would, would actually, you know, what, what there is being labeled as traditional is actually what Nairobi would call contextual. Like in this particular location, this is what we as this community love. And so Nairobi says, we want to embrace the contextual, right? So you don't walk into your people and be like, well, you know, I'm here now to teach you what true worship is <laughs> instead of the kind of golden calf worshiping that you've been doing. But like here in this place, this is these are some of the things that we value. But Nairobi also says, in addition to valuing that, how does this congregation value um, a kind of sending and receiving of, of gifts of mutuality and solidarity across boundaries? Um, and then how do we honor things that, um, that are truly transcultural? Um, you know, if we only have communion once a year, maybe let's, let's think about how we can value that more deeply. And what are some theological reasons, but yeah, to honor those, those life ways and patterns in every, in every given place, not to idolize them, but to, to interpret them theologically. At the same time, I also think of, you know, I'm cautious about, you know, there's, what is, uh, Marty Haugen says, there's nothing more dangerous than a person coming fresh from a worship conference. (laughs) 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 At the same time, like there's an edge to the way like Luke tells the story of Jesus going back to his hometown synagogue. And he preaches probably from the lectionary. He's given this sc- scroll from the prophet Isaiah, preaches this liberating word and then says, you know, this isn't old stuff. This is today. Yeah. And then he tells two scriptural stories. And one is a bread story, a bread meal story, and the other is a water story. So Luke's Eucharistic community is hearing baptism and communion, but the way Jesus tells those stories is these things break us wide open to the outsider, to this foreign widow and to this foreign person living with leprosy. Right. And it's too much for them. And so Luke's church hears the word that like, yeah, even inside the church, in this case the synagogue, that liberating word that's meant for everybody is too much for us to bear sometimes. Um, it's a critique of our own insular liturgies. So, what
0: what I've learned from this is that I was not wrong to tell my students, "You should go talk to Dr. Stewart about this
2: question." <laughs> <laughs> You'll just keep talking.
0: <laughs> no, that's I, I I'm I'm deeply grateful to have a colleague who can draw on all these resources to go. Oh no, somebody already talked about this. Here you go. Just read this thing that already exists and is available to you. <laughs> So I, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, we, we could talk for for a long time, but I, I know our, our time is limited. So I'll, I'll um, offer to you the, the offer we make to, to all of our guests, which is to share an organization or, a, or an event that's coming up that you'd like our listeners to know about. Yeah,
2: um, this is great. So normally in the second Sunday after Easter every year, there's the Institute of Liturgical Studies at Valparaiso University, which often does some really interesting stuff. This year, since it's virtual, They've done it in three uh, sessions. We just had Luke Powery, the dean of uh, Duke Chapel, speak uh, just last week. Uh, the ne- there are two coming up, and the next one is Christian Wyman, who's a really interesting poet from Yale, um, who's talking about the place of language. So we could think about this as like, what does, um, how does something like poetry, this kind of reimagining of the world, how does that work in liturgy? And Wyman is also um, a cancer, a young cancer survivor and talks about the kind of questions that questions of mortality raise. And then Gail Ramshaw, one of the world's kind of leading experts on metaphor and a a white feminist scholar on uh, kind of multiplying the images and metaphors for God. I think students can get in for free. I know my Sacramento landscape uh, students can get in there, but for people who are just full dues paying, 25 bucks will get you into Um, either of these seminars. So the Institute of Liturgical Studies at Valparaiso University and Chris Wyman's is in March and I think Gail Ramshaw's is in April. Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk to us and I I hope you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. It's
2: been really fun. Thanks, Marvin.
1: Everyone for joining us this week for all of our rich conversations. Uh, big thanks to uh, Dr. Ben Stewart for his time and his wisdom. Thanks as always goes to our editor and producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, uh, Eric Fowler. Thanks to Michael Liotis, Franticek Janek and the LSTC tech team for all of their tech support. Uh, thanks to Keith Doc Hampton for the wonderful music that we get to use on our podcast every week. And also thanks to the Lynn C. and Stuart W. Herman Jr. Fund for Innovation in Theological Education for their financial support of this podcast. You can always be in touch with us at lstcpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find out about all of the upcoming LSTC events at lstc.edu events. Thanks. Take good care of yourself and take care of one another.